You can grab your Bibles and open them up again to Amos. You'll be in the book of Amos, chapter 6. If you need some help, go to Psalms, turn right, or go to Matthew, turn left. One of those ways will get you there. <laughs> it's not that much help, I realize that. Um, Amos chapter 6, we're going to begin, we're going to look at all uh, 14 verses tonight, but we'll just read the first seven to get us going, and then we'll continue on as we go through the passage. Uh, so follow along with me again as we read what we're going to be covering. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure in the mountains of Samaria, the distinguished men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Pass on over to Kalna and look, and go from there to Hamath the great, then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are they better than these kingdoms? Or are their borders greater than your borders? Do you put off the day of calamity, and would you cause the seat of violence to approach? Those who lay down on beds of ivory and sprawl on their couches and eat lambs from the flock, and calves from the midst of the stall, who improvise to the sound of the harp, and like David have composed songs for themselves, who drink wine with sacrificial bowls while they anoint themselves with the first pick of the oils. Yet they have not grieved over the destruction of Joseph. Therefore they now go into exile among the first of the exiles, and the sprawler's banqueting will turn aside. Clearly, we are continuing on in a, in a theme of judgment in the book of Amos. Uh, for those um, who are here for the first time, you know, you're kind of jumping in the middle here. Um, but essentially what Amos is doing, he's been called as a prophet. Amos is, is just a shepherd. He has this call on his life. God tells him, you must go. You're going to be the one that tells Israel, uh, that tells Judah that they need to repent uh, for their godless lifestyle. He began by aiming his arrows at the nations, at which point all of Israel would have been clapping, and then all of a sudden he turned the bow and he shot it at Israel. What we're finding out, though, or what we will find out, is that Israel's not listening. They're rejecting it. Uh, for all the, the brilliance of those who've been following along of the, the illustrations that he's used of, of the lion approaching and the danger that is coming if they do not repent, they're just continuing on in their lifestyle. It's having no f effect at all. There's a reason for that, and that's because they've allowed some certain attitudes to become ingrained. Uh, these attitudes clearly are things that have been going on for a long time, and so now their hearts become hardened to such a point that truth is not penetrating. Uh, there's no fear of God in their eyes. They can't see the lion, even though he's roaring right in front of them. And so what we're going to do is just divide this passage, um, verses 1 through 14, up into two main headings. I think that's the best way to take it. The first one's going to come in verses 1 through 7, and what we're going to see are the attitudes that lead to judgment. What are these attitudes that were deeply ingrained that caused them not to be able to hear the message 
which would inevitably lead to God's judgment. And then second, in verses 8 through 14, we're going to see the consequences that result from the judgment. What is the judgment exactly that God's going to bring on them? So we look first at the attitudes. Attitudes leading to judgment. The first attitude we're going to see is one of ease. Um, self-confidence, complacency, presumption. You can see it in the very first uh, verse there. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, those who feel secure in the mountains of Samaria. Unlike the most recent address, this one is addressed to both Judah, those in Zion, and Israel, those in the mountains of Samaria. So he's aiming this judgment at all of Israel, north and south. And the issue he begins with was one of being at ease. These people, despite their sinful lifestyle, despite the message that Amos had been called to bring, are still at rest. There's no fear in their eyes. Now, obviously the word ease here in this context uh, is negative. It's a negative connotation. Woe to those who are at ease. We saw a branch retreat. We went through Matthew 23 and the, the woes that Jesus pronounces on the, the Pharisees, right? So this is not a positive thing. And yet there is a sense in which it is good to be at ease. Christ gives the invitation in Matthew eleven twenty eight: 28. Come to me, all who are uh, heavy laden, who labor, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In those words is a certain kind of, of ease and, and rest and peace and security. Uh, that is actually promised to the righteous. In Jeremiah 30.10, we read this, Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares Yahweh. Do not be dismayed, O Israel. For behold, I will save you from afar and your seed from the land of their captivity. And Jacob will return and be quiet and at ease. And no one will make him tremble. If God is who he is, and he is, and if you are truly his, there is a certain sense where you should be at ease. In fact, in the Lord's providence, I didn't plan it, but Romans chapter 8 is essentially describing that. Who shall bring a charge against us? Uh, we are more than conquerors. Uh, no one can take our salvation. That's ease and rest and quiet and peace inside of our hearts. It is a good thing, a blessed thing, with that positive understanding of the word ease for God's people to be at ease in Zion. And by the way, this kind of ease and rest is denied to the wicked. Isaiah fifty-seven nineteen, Peace, peace to him who is far and to him who is near, says Yahweh. I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up in refuge and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. True ease and true rest is offered to the righteous. It's denied to the wicked. Now all that as a backdrop to show you all the more the folly that Israel was in. It's denied to the wicked. So then when you see the wicked at rest and at ease, you know that it is false. 
It's a false security, and in one sense, a, a kind of judgment. It is, as Spurgeon writes, not the confidence of a man who is pardoned, but the ease of a hardened wretch who suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. Amos 6.1, woe to those who are at ease and who feel secure. So this is a kind of ease of self-confidence that would make you think that you're beyond danger or judgment. It's a false security. It is an ease built upon the sand, a foundation which God promises sooner or later will come crashing down. And so right here from the very beginning, you should at least ask yourself, am I at ease because I know God? Am I at ease because I trust in God's promises? Do I have a true rest or a false one? Matthew 7.24, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them may be compared to a wise man who has built his house on the rock. The rain descended and the rivers came and the winds blew and fell against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone hearing these words of mine and doing them may be compared to a foolish man who does not do them, who built his house on the sand. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. That man who built his house on the sand was at rest falsely, a false security. Psalm 84.5, How blessed is the man whose strength is in you, in God. Verse 7, they go from strength to strength. In other words, there's no end to the amount of strength that we have in Christ. Each one of them appears before God in Zion. For Yahweh God is a sun, a shield. Yahweh gives grace and glory. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk blamelessly. O Yahweh of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in you. So these men had rest, but not in the Lord, which means they had no rest. Who were these men? The verse calls them, you can see in verse 1, the distinguished men of the first of the nations, which lets us know we're dealing with the kind of men who are of privilege and rank. Now, these are the leaders, the judges, the, the men who've been appointed to certain positions in Israel. It goes on to say, those to whom the house of Israel comes. So not only do they have these titles, but people actually looked up to them. They were going to them for wisdom. Not only that, they were the first of the nations, meaning they were not only leaders of their nation, but their nation was ahead of the other nations. And so this would be like the position of America. For example, when Israel was attacked by Hamas, they were really hoping that America would be behind that because we're a leader amongst the nations. So these men who were at rest were distinguished. Men of privilege, they were leaders. Now, if your leaders are living in false security, and if the people under those leaders are going to them for counsel, the whole nation is in a position of judgment, and they have no idea. And this surely describes much of what is going on in our nation. There are leaders, they're appointed to positions of leadership, which surely are a judgment on us, because we're the ones who put them there, and we are looking to them for direction. 
they're dwelling in security when what they should be doing is trembling. The whole nation is in danger of judgment. Uh, when the Lord wants to judge a nation, He gives them corrupt leaders. And this is exactly what is going on here. Now, these leaders want to keep their position. They don't fear God, so how do you keep that position? You don't say things like, hey, judgment is coming, we need to repent, uh, I've done things wrong. You can't say that. Instead, what you say is, hey, peace, peace, everything's fine, no big deal, let's just keep on going how we're going. They only care about themselves. And the least to the greatest, Jeremiah 8.10, all are greedy for gain. Prophets and priests alike, all practice deceit. They dress the wound of my people as if it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. That's the kind of ease that we're talking about here in Zion. I don't remember where I heard this, but recently, <clears throat> somewhere I heard that most wrecks, like far more wrecks happen on rural, rural sorry, roads that are not in the city. Let's just say that. <laughs> if you can't say that word, you can find something else. Roads that are not in the city, as opposed to in the city, like fatal wrecks. And the reason is because, from what this person was saying, is because you're just not really aware of the danger. And so you're driving fast, uh, you're not looking for who's coming over the hill or whatever, and fatalities happen. And that's some of what we're trying to get at here. It's the idea that when you're not aware of the danger, you're actually in more danger then you know. And so we need to wake up, and that's essentially what he's trying to get them to do. So what is the first attitude that is leading them to not be able to accept the message that precedes judgment? It's just one of ease. Secondly, and this surely led to the ease, and that would be pride. Verse 2, Pass on over to Kalna and look, and go from there to Hamath the Great. Then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are they better than these kingdoms, or are their borders greater than your borders? Pride is an attitude that, of course, shouldn't surprise us. Pride comes before destruction. Destruction is coming, and so if you know destruction has been promised by God, then there must be pride. And this verse invites the readers to do a survey of the land. He says, go to the east, go to the west. I want you to look, and I want you to ask this question. Are you any better than these kingdoms? Are you any better than these kingdoms? Look out. Consider their borders. Consider it all. Are you better? Two ways you could answer it, yes or no. In one sense, yes, they were. And as we'll find out as we keep reading, these people had a lot of wealth. And so you could look at it from a purely physical standpoint and say, yes, I am better than these people materially. I have more possessions. And in a position of pride, you would be tempted to say, well, because I'm better, surely this must mean that the Lord's favor has shown upon me. I'm blessed. Or, in a position of humility, this is the answer that the rhetorical question is actually looking for, you could say, I'm no better than them. And that's actually what he was saying. It's ironic that they probably didn't get it, but what he was saying is you look at the nations and their sin and what they're involved in, you're no better. You're in the exact same position. 
Part of the reason that they had been lulled into ease and false security is because they were comparing themselves to others with a standard that was unbiblical, with an easy standard. Of course you feel good about yourself. They were proudly comparing themselves to others. This is the same problem that Jesus addressed in Luke 18. He tells a parable. Parables to those who trusted in themselves. Why? That they were righteous. And they viewed others with contempt. So these were people who would go over to the nations, they would view them with contempt. I'm better than them. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying these things to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like these other people, these nations, the swindlers, the unjust, the adulterers, or even this tax collector. He was really good at seeing the sin of other people. He could point it out. He knew all the sins that were going on in his nation. I fast twice a day. I pay tithes of all I get. He knew the good things about himself. He knew the bad things about others. But the surprising thing, and what would have been surprising to the Pharisees, was the contrast. Jesus says, but the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes up to heaven, but was beating his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, the one who humbles himself will be exalted. There are a lot of issues going on in our nation, and if you're really good at seeing those issues, and you're really good at seeing the good things in yourself, but you can't see your own sin, you're in a very dangerous position. You ought to look at those and say, but for the grace of God, that would be me. You ought to look at those and say, you know what? I'm swimming in some of these same waters. I need to be careful. In some sense, not even able to look up to heaven. Are you humble? In truth, we're no better than the worst of sinners, and we cannot forget this. Even as we look at Muslim nations, we see the atrocities and all the crazy beliefs going on. We know that it's only God's grace that we believe any differently. We're no better. Material blessings, earthly comfort, proximity to truth is no indicator of spiritual health. It's no indicator of spiritual strength. And it might only be the source of pride in your life, which in the end will only make you more deserving of God's judgment. So either you weigh yourselves against God and His Word, or you're really not weighing yourself at all. You must use a biblical standard. Don't ask easy questions. Not, am I better than this person or that person, or am I pleased with myself? You're always going to answer those questions in a way that makes you feel better. Ask, how do I compare to Christ? How do I compare to God? How am I living up to the perfect standard? Where am I failing? Ask hard questions and then humbly repent with an attitude that understands you're no better than the next person. Put off proud comparisons and put on humble ones. So that's the second attitude. Now a third. It's just simple unbelief. They were at ease, they were proud, and they did not believe what Amos was saying. Verse 3. Do you, that is you who are so comfortable in your sin, put off the day of calamity, 
That is, you delay your repentance, as if you knew when it was coming. And would you cause the seat of violence to approach? He's saying the distinguished leaders, those in the nation who are at ease in their sin, they're rejecting the warning, as if they knew when the day of calamity was coming. They they must be saying, well, the calamity might come, but surely it's not for us. I'm not living in a way that would deserve it. But then, he says, you're causing the seed of violence to approach. In other words, you're actually continuing your sin and living in sin in such a way that's just going to make it worse. The words indicate that this rejection was not passive. It's active. He says, do you put off or literally translated, do you throw off or cast aside? In other words, they heard the message, they understood the message, and no problem understanding it. They got exactly what Amos was saying but they threw it off in disgust. They didn't want any part of it. The message was clear, but they rejected it and casted it aside. And since they were the leaders, they led others to do the same, by example and most likely through their words. So their nation was completely unprepared for the coming judgment. Not only did they reject the coming judgment, but they rejected their need for repentance and they continued in their sin. They were like the men of 2 Peter 3, who although had been warned, will be warned, they just continue mocking God and mocking those who were speaking the word. So they had an attitude of ease, pride, unbelief or rejection, and then one more attitude, and that is greed. Greed. Greed is something in nations that typically is at the end of their life cycle. Just greed, luxurious living. Look at this, and just look at the words in verse 4 through 7. Those who lay down on beds of ivory. This is lavish, luxurious living. They sprawl out on Couches, idleness, laziness. Um, And really that, as we've seen as we've gone through Amos, laziness while others were slaving away who were poor. And they eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst. And I think what he's saying here is a full-grown sheep might feed many, and they could have waited to do that, but they're going to eat the sheep, why it's a lamb, because they preferred that, because they could. It's just all about luxury, concern, self-satisfaction. Who improvise to the sound of the harp, and like David, have composed songs for themselves. They're, they're writing songs, they're having a great time. You drink wine from sacrificial bowls. Uh, this is blasphemous. These bowls were supposed to be used to worship God. They're just using them for the party. While they anoint themselves with the first pick of the oils, yet they have not grieved over the destruction of Joseph. These people were full of greed, and they only cared about themselves. This is the exact opposite of what a leader is to be. The exact opposite of what a leader is to be in the family the exact opposite of what someone who has the truth is to be. 
the exact opposite of what a leader in a religious context is to be, the exact opposite of what a leader of a nation should be. This is exactly what the world does. This describes our nation. The leaders of our nation are not out for the most part. I can't see their hearts to serve everybody else. It's to save their own skin. It's to grow rich and to continue in a lifestyle of greed. When these kinds of things start happening, this is what precedes coming judgment. God does not give blessing to a nation so that they could go rich, fat, and happy and live it up. He blesses a nation so that they can bless, so that truth can go forward. So basically, we've taken what God has given, and here in Amos' day, they had taken what God had given them. And then they forgot God, rejected God, spit in His face, and used His blessing for their own satisfaction while they oppressed the poor under them. This is what they didn't see. They had no fear of God. Some of the worst judgment pronouncements come against the rich. We don't have time for it, but you can read about it in James chapter 5, where it talks about weeping and howling and the miseries that are coming upon them. First uh, Timothy chapter 6 talks all about the dangers and the temptations that accompany uh, money, fall into temptation, a snare, foolish, harmful desires, Plunge men into ruin and destruction, the love of money, the root of all evils, wandered away from the faith, pierced themselves with many griefs. Money is a danger. Luke 12, 15, Jesus said, Watch out, be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Leaders of Amos' day were living like kings, and as such, they were not serving the Lord, but they were serving their own appetites. They had no concern for the people under them, only concern for their own selfish desires. Romans 16, 17, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause division, create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught, avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. With smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Why the smooth talk? Why the flattery? Because people are just objects to be used for their own self-gratification. So if you in any sense look at others in that way, you're in a dangerous position. You might have money, you might not have a lot of money, but you can still have greed. And Jesus says, watch out for every form of greed. Because that creates a temptation to misuse God's blessing, to misuse people whom were created in the image of God, and to deceive yourself such that you will one day be judged and not know that it's coming. All of this they did, and yet it says they did not grieve over the destruction of Joseph. They might have grieved had they lost all their money. But when there's a real tragedy, they cannot grieve. So it flips everything around. The emotions are all out of whack. 
What's the result? Therefore, verse 7, they will now go into exile among the first of the exiles. The sprawlers, those who are laid out on their fancy couches while they eat, banqueting will turn aside. The ESV translates it this way. I like this. Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile. The leaders are going to be the first escorted out of here. This is a promise. Did it happen? Excavations of the area show ruins in Samaria that have extravagant use of ivory, decorative purposes laid out everywhere, and it also shows a violent overthrow of some kind. It did happen because God promised it would happen. And the first here, the leaders, the distinguished men, the rich, became last. The exalted were humbled, which is another promise in the Bible. If you exalt yourself, you will be humbled. If you humble yourself, you will be exalted. There is a great reversal coming. Jesus talked about this with the rich man in Lazarus. The rich man had everything he wanted. Lazarus had nothing. But when they both died, suddenly there was this great reversal. Live for the good reversal, not the bad reversal. One day things are going to be reversed. If you're humble, you're going to be reversed to such a state that you would have never thought possible. You'll be exalted, glorified. You'll see the Son of God face to face. You'll inherit things that you never thought were possible because Christ owns all. Now you are co-heirs with Christ. But if you're rich and you're greedy, that reversal is going to be similar but completely opposite of nothing and always want and eternal destruction and fire forever. Greed on this earth is not worth eternal damnation. Well, how do we avoid these things? We live humbly with fear of God in our eyes and we keep in mind what the Word of God says. We have a fear of the Word. Romans 15.1 says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, not to please ourselves. If you find yourself in any position of leadership, and as you grow older, you will find yourself in positions of leadership, you have an obligation to help the weak, to bear with them. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. This is written in the former days for our own instruction. So verses 1 through 7 describe the attitudes. Oh, what's the consequences? Secondly, the consequences resulting from judgment, our second heading. Uh, this is going to be really quick. Two things, total destruction and foolish thinking, hardened heart. Total destruction. Look at this, verse 8. Lord Yahweh has sworn by himself. Yahweh, God of hosts, has declared. God of hosts, again, this is a reference to his army's host of angels. This is warrior language. He has declared, I abhor the lofty pride of Jacob. I hate his citadels. Therefore, I will deliver up the city as well as its fullness. And it will be if ten men are left in one house, they will die. Then one's uncle or the one who burns his bones will lift him up to bring out his bones from the house. 
He will say to the one who is in the innermost part of the house, Is anyone else with you? That one will say, No one, because it's been total destruction. And then that one will answer, Keep quiet. The name of Yahweh is not to be mentioned. Why? Because finally there's some fear. There's some fear. For behold, verse 11, Yahweh is going to command and will strike the great house to pieces and the small house to fragments. This is total and complete destruction deserved. Secondly, God sends foolish thinking, a deluded mind. Uh, he says in verse 12, he asks a question. Do horses run on rocks, or does one plow them with oxen? Yet you have overturned justice into gall and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. Uh, basically, this is Romans 1 language. He's taking things that would have been very familiar to all of them. Uh, they would have known about horses. Of course, horses do not run on rocks. What he's saying is, why can you not see the obvious? Why are you living in a way that is against what God has called you to? You're essentially like a horse running on a rock. You might be plowing, but you're not actually plowing deep. There's no true repentance. It's just scraping the surface of your heart. It needs to truly plow up. It says, you've overturned justice into gall and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. In other words, Romans 1 language, what is good is bad in your eyes and what is bad is good. You've flipped it. There's no justice. People are suffering, which of course is exactly what is going on in our nation today as well. The courts are flipping everything. There's no justice. Nobody even trusts them. Um, but what is truth is now declared false, and what is false is declared truth. They've overturned it. What should be pleasant and sweet is bitter to them, and what is actually bitter and poisonous is sweet to them. This is judgment. This is a consequence of the attitudes we've been looking at. When you get to this point, Judgment's here. Consequences are coming. All came because of pride. He says in verse 13, You who are glad and low to bar and say, Have we not by our own strength taken carnim for ourselves? What's he saying there? <laughs> They're taking credit for their victories, for their position, for their position of leadership, for the blessings. They are not giving any credit to God. So they flipped justice. What's bad is good and good is bad. They flipped all of that. They're running their nation into the ground, and yet while they do that, they're just boasting about their current position, which is about to fall off a cliff. Amos 6.14, God would soon show them how delusional and foolish their thinking was. For behold... I'm going to raise up a nation against you, O house of Israel, declares Yahweh, God of hosts. It will press down on you from Lebo Hamath to the brook of Arabah. Total destruction is coming. And maybe they would remember these words when it was coming, but by then it would be too late. 
So, of course, all of this we want to avoid. We want to avoid this. You don't want to live in dread of this either. In one sense, I want all of you to be at ease walking out of this room. But it needs to be the right kind of ease. came across an illustration. It was an old preacher who was once told by one of the members of his congregation that he did not think that people should be made uncomfortable in his church. And the preacher, the old preacher, said, I agree. And the member was a little bit confused by that. And then he said, Comfort must be sought, not by way of altering or ignoring doctrine, but by way of repentance upon hearing the truth. I want people to be comfortable in the church, but they need to be comfortable because they've repented and they've given their heart over to Christ. Christ is your refuge. That's comfort. But if comfort is coming because you're changing the tune, because you're not preaching the truth anymore, that's a false comfort that is one day going to be really uncomfortable. I do pray that each of you are at ease, but let it be the ease that only Christ can give. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Father, we do pray that you would, Lord, bring revival to our nation. Lord, much of this that we talked about tonight is concerning, to say the least, because as we look at what's going on, we can see through the biblical lens that it's not looking good, and that we deserve judgment. And Father, even us here in this room, as we swim in the waters of our culture, Father, we know that we've done things that deserve judgment. And so where do we have to go? Where can we flee from judgment? And that's only in your Son, Jesus Christ. And so Father, we thank you that your promise is sure and true, and that we can trust it. And Father, I pray that all of us would come not only to trust in this promise, but Lord, to pursue Christ with all of our heart each day. Lord, to tell others, not only of the coming judgment, not only of their need to repent, not only of their foolishness, but to tell others of how good Christ is and that refuge can be found only in Him. Lord, we thank You for the sweetness of Your Word. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.